All right, take your Bible and open to John chapter 20. John chapter 20, and I'm going to read down through verse 20. John chapter 20. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. And so she ran and came to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went forth and the other disciple, and they were going to the tomb. And the two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Simon Peter therefore also came following him and entered the tomb and beheld the linen wrappings lying there, the face cloth uh, which had been on his head uh, not lying with the linen wrappings but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb entered then also and saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping, and so she wept. She stooped and looked into the tomb. And she beheld two angels in white, one at the head, one at the foot, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. And when she had said this, she turned around and beheld Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came announcing to, his, to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that uh, he had said these things to her. When therefore it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, and there the disciples were uh, for fear of the Jews, that uh, Jesus came and stood there in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples therefore rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we're thankful for an opportunity to come before you and worship. And we pray, Lord, that you guide us and direct us as we open your word and um, you help us uh, come to a greater understanding of the great, wonderful, historical truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and, and what that means for us, what it means for time, uh, what it means for eternity, what it means for this world. Open our eyes that we might behold uh, even greater uh, the glory of Christ. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, did you ever think we'd make it to chapter 20? It's been a long go here uh, in the, the book of John. We're Chapter 20, only two chapters left. Uh, it, it's been a tremendous study, and I think one uh, that's going to be hard for us to put down when we come to the end of it, because uh, we've learned so much about our glorious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And, and as much as we've studied the book, I honestly believe this to be true, as much as we've studied this 
a wonderful book together. I, I really believe we've only just begun to scratch the surface uh, of what there is for us to learn uh, over the years, as we individually return, we may never return to this book as a congregation, right? But as we learn individually and keep reading this book, there's just much more for us to learn about the person of Jesus Christ in the Gospel of John. It is just so magnificent. But this morning, we come to the very cornerstone of the Christian faith, the very center of the Christian proclamation of the Gospel, the height of redemptive history, the historical, literal, bodily, physical resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because there is no Christianity apart, of the liter- apart from the literal, physical resurrection of Christ. It's just that simple. There is no Christianity. If Christ did not really rise from the dead, and then Christianity is not true. If Christ didn't really rise from the dead, Christianity is not true, and we're all wasting our time here. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 14, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith also in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we witness against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, even, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. And then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ this day, or in this life only, we are all men most to be pitied. Verse 20 of that chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. Jesus Christ literally, physically defeated death. Amen? He literally, physically defeated death and came out of the grave. Now the church gathers on Sunday, uh, not to Friday, not Tuesday, but the church gathers each and every Sunday as a remembrance of that. It's a visible testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The early church met on the first day of the week, uh, like we do, because it was the day that the Lord Jesus rose from the dead. It was the first day that he appeared uh, to others. And we went through that, uh, this issue, Sunday worship, uh, a couple weeks back in the evening service, and we saw that the church gathers together on that day because that's when the Lord met with his church. That's when the Lord himself met with his church. That's the day he set aside for the worship of himself. Eventually, it became the first day of the week. It became known as the Lord's Day. So every Sunday that comes around is really a fresh opportunity to give testimony uh, to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We gather on this day to, to, to in, in Christ's name, to offer prayer and petition and worship and praise to him and listen to his word. And we do all of that as if he is still alive because he is. He is still alive. The angel of the Lord uh, announced to the women at the tomb earlier that Sunday morning. Matthew records it like this. He says, Matthew 28, verse 5, Do not be afraid, for I know that you're looking for Jesus, who has been crucified. He's not here, for he is risen. Just as he said, come see the place where he was lying. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. The resurrection of Christianity, uh, the, the doctrine of the resurrection is peculiar only to Christianity. Uh, of the three great world religions, Judaism, Mohammedism, or Islam, uh, and Christianity, Christianity, it's only Christianity that has uh, doctrine of the resurrection. Uh, the father of Judaism was Abraham. He died somewhere around uh, 1900 BC, but there's no resurrection of Abraham ever claimed. Abraham's tomb is uh, still carefully preserved almost uh, 4,000 years later in Hebron in southern Palestine, 
but there's no resurrection of, of Abraham in, in Judaism. And in Mohammedism, likewise, the same thing is true. Mohammed died in June, uh, on June 8, 1632 in Medina. And today many people visit that tomb. They visit that shrine of the prophet. But no Mohammedan claims a bodily resurrection of Muhammad. By their own testimony, he's dead. And that's it. Even other religions, such as Buddhism, there's no claim of a resurrection. Uh, in the ancient accounts of Buddha's death, uh, they say he died and nothing remains. So the, the doctrine of the resurrection, again, is peculiar to Christianity, and it is essential to biblical Christianity. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the crowning event of God's redemptive history. Uh, again, the very cornerstone of Christianity, the foundation of the gospel. It's what guarantees heaven uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the essential truth, and it is the whole point of the gospel, uh, to rescue people from hell so that they can go to heaven. And, and that's the whole point of the gospel, to be delivered from eternal judgment into the place of eternal blessing because of Jesus Christ and his resurrection from the dead. So the message of the Bible is that uh, death is not the end for anyone. The message of the Bible is that everyone who's ever lived is going to live forever because all men are created in the very image of God. Uh, he is eternal, and therefore all men live eternally. And the issue is, where do you reside? Where do you reside in the eternal future? Either in heaven or hell. Those are the only two options. Either an eternal death or an eternal life. Either under everlasting suffering and punishment or in the presence of God with everlasting joy. And we do so not just with, with, uh, as disembodied spirits, because every person who's ever been born, who lives forever, will live and be raised again in a bodily form. All men are going to raise from the dead. All men are going to rise from the dead because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. So the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead uh, and, and the grave is a pledge and a promise, a guarantee, again, for all of us who believe in him, that we will also be raised in bodily form, not the judgment, but we will be raised to bodily, in bodily form to eternal blessing and joy with him. In the presence of God forever, serving, worshiping, uh, being completely satisfied with God in his presence. And again, the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is so significant, it actually dominates the entire New Testament. It particularly uh, dominates the, the, the preaching of the gospel. It uh, begins early on in, in the book of Acts. You've got the four gospel accounts. And, and then you've got the reality of the church being born in the book of Acts. And then the reality of the resurrection. And what does that mean? So you go to the book of Acts and, and you start just listening to, the, to what is taught. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. And God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Acts chapter 3, verse 14. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. Acts chapter 4, verse 10, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that Jesus Christ, the Nazarene whom you crucified, God raised from the dead. Acts chapter 5, verse 30, God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him 
on a cross. You go into Acts chapter 7 and Stephen preaches about the resurrection. You go to Acts chapter 8. Philip preaches about the resurrection. You go to Acts chapter 9. And to his horror, the man who at the time was known as Saul of Tarsus meets the physically resurrected Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 10, verse 39. Now we are all witnesses of these things that he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a cross. Verse 40, God raised him up on the third day and granted that we should become, that he should become visible, not to all people, but to the witnesses who were chosen beforehand. By God, that is to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. Acts chapter 13, verse 30. God raised him from the dead. Verse 33, God fulfilled his promises uh, to our children that he raised up Jesus. I mean, it just goes on and on. All the way. All right, you go into the, <clears throat> you go into the epistles, and again, you see the same theme. That it's always the resurrection. Uh, Romans 6, 4, Christ raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father. 1 Corinthians 15, 4, he rose again on the third day according to the Scripture. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 14, uh, who was raised up he who raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise us up also. Galatians 1 and 1, God the Father who raised him from the dead. Ephesians 1.20, God raised Christ from the dead. Philippians 3.10, that you may know him and the power of his resurrection. Colossians 2 verse 12, God who raised him from the dead. 1 Thessalonians 1.10, his son whom he raised from the dead. 1 Peter 1.3, God the Father had begotten us to a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You go to the last book of the New Testament, the book of the Revelation, and it echoes the theme of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, the Lord Jesus Christ himself says, as he initiates the book, with this great statement, he says in verse 1 of the book of Revelation, chapter 8, I am the Alpha, the Omega, says the Lord God, who was, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty, verse 17, I am the first and the last, the living one. I was dead. And behold, now I am alive. I'm alive forever, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Guess what? The theme of the Bible, the theme of the New Testament from beginning to end, all the way through the New Testament, is the resurrection of the person of Jesus Christ. The fact that Jesus Christ literally, physically, historically defeated death. Again, there's no Christianity without the resurrection. It's that important. And again, the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead is attested by all four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. I was, talking to a, uh, I was talking to a high school teacher just the other day, and we were talking about this. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the greatest historical reality in all of human history, and it's not taught in any secular school. That's sad. Of all the men who've lived throughout history, he is the most important figure and his resurrection, the most important historical event in human history, the most significant expression of the power of God for his people, because it verifies, vindicates that the offering of Jesus Christ was accepted by the Father. Jesus Christ accepted God the Father. Christ satisfied the righteous demands of the law through his uh, voluntary sacrifice. Paul says this, uh, he was delivered up, Romans 4.25, he was delivered up because of our transgressions, and he was raised because of our justification. Jesus Christ fulfilled it all. And the fact that Jesus Christ literally rose from the dead rests in the reality that he literally was dead when he came down from the cross. Right? That's the testimony of the Word of God. That's the testimony of the Word of God. That's the testimony of many witnesses. 
His bodily resurrection has been attested to over and over again, verified as a historical reality, verified as a historical fact. Now, at first, all of his disciples, his closest friends, his followers, they didn't believe in the initial account of the resurrection. But they're going to be forced to believe in the resurrection because of the overwhelming evidence as they are repeatedly going to come in contact with the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Now, initially, it wasn't easy for them to believe in the resurrection because it's difficult for all men to embrace the miraculous, especially something like the resurrection. Jesus Christ was nailed to a cross. They all saw that. They all saw Roman soldiers take a hammer and drive nails through through his hands and his feet, and they saw him die on the cross. And when he was taken down from the cross, they all saw it. He was taken down as a dead man. Taken down from the cross, and he was buried in a tomb as a dead man. But three days later, he comes to life. And again, when these facts are repeatedly laid before everyone's eyes, when Jesus literally appears physically both to his uh, friends and his enemies, it's very hard to reject that truth. So today, when men are confronted with a historical testimony of the reality of the resurrection, it gives proof that the barrier to believing in the historical reality of the resurrection is not an intellectual issue. It's not a matter of not enough evidence. It's really a moral barrier. Moral barrier. It's an irrationality. I've told you that before. It's an irrationality that refuses to embrace the truth. It refuses to embrace uh, the evidence. I, I've told you, uh, we've done it a few times through the study of John. Uh, I said that belief, uh, unbelief is completely irrational. Men who refuse to believe the literal, physical, historical resurrection of Jesus Christ falsely believe that it's their great intellects that is keeping them away from believing in the resurrection. But the reality is that's not the fact. It's not their intellect that's keeping them away from the truth. It's their hard hearts. Because there have been a lot of people with great intellects that have believed in the literal, historical, physical resurrection of the person of Jesus Christ. It's not an intellectual issue. It's a moral issue. It's a hard heart. It's a hatred for God. It's a hatred for Christ. And it's a love for sin. Because unbelief is actually an act of the will. It's an act of the will. It's an act of the spirit. It is a a mentality. It is rebellion in face of all the evidence. It's an act of suppression of the truth in in unrighteousness. Unbelief blinds the mind of of men to the truth. It's a prejudiced, uh, unbelief is a prejudiced hostility towards the truth. A rejection of truth that can only be overcome by repentance and faith in the truth. Right? Unbelief can only be overcome by repentance and faith in the truth, faith in the Word of God. The Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Romans 10, 17. The Bible says, 1 Corinthians 2, 14, A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they're foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised. 2 Corinthians 4, 3, Paul says, Even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, they might not see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So listen, when we approach the resurrection of Jesus Christ and all the issues surrounding the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we who understand the historical reality, we have to realize that we're entering into the supernatural realm. It really is a supernatural thing for us to understand the historical reality of the Lord Jesus Christ. It really is God in his kindness overcoming our once rebellious hearts. It's God in his kindness overcoming the rebellious hearts of fallen men and the detrimental activity of the little g God of this world, which is Satan. 
who again goes around blinding the minds of the unbelieving so they can't see the glory of Christ. It's a great grace. It's a great grace that we understand the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because the evidence surrounding the resurrection of Jesus Christ is plentiful. But again, evidence alone is never going to convict the heart of the unbeliever. Evidence alone cannot convict the non-believer about the literal, physical reality of the person of Jesus Christ and his literal, physical reality of him defeating death. That's something that only God does. That's something, again, that only God does in his grace and his kindness. Listen to me. Only God can prove God. If you come to an understanding of the truth, it's because God in his kindness has opened your blind, your once blind eyes so that you can see the truth. It's only God who can awaken the dead spiritually so our eyes can see the glory of the person of Jesus Christ. Because, again, in spite of all the evidence, there's still a lot of people who don't believe. A lot of men don't believe in the person of Jesus Christ. A lot of people don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They will not accept the evidence. They will not accept evidence number one, the witness of the empty tomb. But again, for us who do believe, it's another evidence of God's grace and kindness. Uh, Again, in our lives, he's opened our once blind eyes to the reality of the truth so we can see the truth about his dear son, uh, the Lord Jesus. The reality of who he is. He is God come in the flesh. The reality that he is, in fact, the one, the only one who's ever defeated death. Now, the last time I was with you a couple weeks ago, this is exactly where we were. Uh, Jesus is dead, right? He's dead. He's been crucified. He's been buried. And and again, the burial of Jesus Christ is another vindication, validation of the fact that he's dead. So look back up in chapter 19 and uh, look at verse 30, and we'll just take it from there. Verse 30 of chapter 19. When Jesus, therefore, had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Again, no one takes Christ's life. He's giving it up voluntarily. He's not a victim. He's a voluntary sacrifice. He's laying down his life of his own free will as our substitute. Verse 31. The Jews, therefore, because of the day of preparation, so that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath. John gives a little parenthetical thought, for that Sabbath was a high day. Asked Pilate that the legs might be broken, and that they might be taken away. Verse 32, the soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other man who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Now again, the Romans are professional executioners. They know death when they see it. Determining death is part of their job. And they affirm the fact that Jesus is already dead by not breaking his legs. Verse 34, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately there came out blood and water. So another confirmation that Jesus is dead. It's called a death stroke. Uh, and that's what it was known. The death stroke was administered. If there was any life left in the victim, it would be evident by that spear being jammed into his side. But there is none. The reason there is none is because Jesus is, Jesus is dead. Verse 35. And he who has seen has borne witness, and his witness is true. He knows that he is telling the truth so that you may also believe. First-hand testimony, right? These things came to pass at the Scripture, verse 36 Uh, these things came to pass that the scripture might be fulfilled that not a bone of him shall be broken and again another scripture says they shall look on him whom they have pierced now comes the burial dead now comes the burial 
Now, two men who previously out of fear uh, had been secret disciples of Christ are now going to come out in the open. They're going to give bold public testimony of their love for the person of Christ. They're going to openly identify with this person who has been executed as a malefactor and declared a blasphemer by the religious establishment. These two men, they're God's men. And they are going to be used by God to take care of the body of his dear son. Verse 38, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted permission, and he came therefore and took away his body. And Nicodemus came also, who had first come to him by night, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. So they took uh, the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now again, if there's any sign of life in the person of Jesus, then these two men who are wrapping his body in these linen uh, wrappings and, and spices, uh, because that was the burial custom of the dead, uh, in an attempt to overcome the uh, smell of, uh, of uh, corruption, the smell of the decomposing body. If these, there was any life, these men would have known that. And if these men were expecting Jesus to rise from the dead, then they would not have bothered to prepare the body so, thurial, uh, so thoroughly for burial, but they did. And again, at this time, nobody understands the reality of the resurrection. Because no man in all of human history, except for the person of Jesus Christ, has ever defeated death. Verse, 40, verse 41, now in that place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a tomb, which no one had been yet laid. Uh, and uh, therefore, on account of the Jewish day of preparation, because the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. So again, indisputable proof that Jesus is dead. It's verified by the professional uh, executioners, the Romans' guards. It's confirmed again by both Joseph and uh, Nicodemus, who dealt with the body of Christ, because again, if there had been any sign of life in him, most certainly they would have never wrapped him in those linen perfumed cloths, burial cloths, and then sealed him in a tomb and left, but they did. That's what they did. They, they wrapped him in this mixture of cloths and uh, spices and aloes and myrrhs and put him in a tomb and closed the door and went home because he's dead. Now, you might remember that I told you also in Matthew's account of the situation that the enemies of the Lord take an extra step. They take an extra special precaution as they conspire together to create a scenario that makes it impossible to carry out any kind of deception, any kind of uh, fake resurrection. So in utterly utter hypocrisy, uh, they meet on the high Sabbath day, the day of the Passover here, uh, uh, with, the, with the person of Pilate. Remember on Friday, they wouldn't go. They made Pilate come out. They wouldn't go in because they didn't want to defile themselves. Now here on this most high holy day, they go into the presence of Pilate and request that the tomb where Jesus is laid would be sealed. It would be guarded, made secure. Guards posted at the entrance to make sure that no one could come and steal the body and claim that he'd been raised from the dead. And, and, and that's what happened. Uh, so again, it's really another confirmation. Jesus is dead. The tomb is being guarded by uh, Roman soldiers. People come and go, well, maybe the women went to the wrong tomb. They don't know. What. Well, the Roman guards certainly know what tomb it is. They're not going to guard just any tomb. They're guarding the tomb where the body of Jesus is laying. And that's what they did. And, and, and it's that very same tomb that is authenticated by the Roman seal that is put on the outside of the tomb to make sure that if the stone is messed with or rolled away, it will be evident to everyone. And I've told you that the disciples aren't, create, aren't interested whatsoever in creating a resurrection hoax uh, because they don't get it. 
the resurrection never entered their minds. Where, where are they? Answer, they've all fled, right? When Jesus was arrested, they, they've all run away. They're not thinking about any kind of hoax. As I told you, the religious leaders go to this extra step uh, because they're fearful, not of the disciples coming and stealing the body of Jesus Christ. The religious leaders are actually in fear of who? They're in fear of Jesus. They fear him. They've been watching him. They cannot deny the miraculous power of the person of Jesus Christ. They test it uh, to, to Satan, but they cannot deny the miraculous power of the person of Jesus Christ. For the last three years, they've seen him perform miracle after miracle. They've seen him heal the sick. They've seen him give sight to the blind. They've seen him cast out demons and, and cleanse lepers and restore limbs. And just a few days, listen, it's entirely significant, just a few days before they murdered him, they'd actually seen Jesus raise Lazarus of Bethany from the dead. An undeniable reality, an undeniable fact. The Jewish religious leaders on Saturday do not fear the disciples. They don't fear a hoax. They fear Jesus Christ. They fear that he may indeed have the power he claimed to have, the power that he demonstrated he had repeatedly in his life. They fear that he may raise himself from the dead because that's exactly what he's going to do. All right, that's all introduction to get to the text here, right? And there's a lot of material, as you can imagine. And just so you know, we're not going to make it through one time. Jesus is going to be raised from the dead for a few weeks coming. We don't know how long because I don't know how long. But that's, uh, he's at least out of the tomb, so we're encouraged by that. Now, the whole gospel story, again, centers around the person of Jesus Christ. And all along, I've been pointing out the fact to you that Jesus Christ is in charge because he's the sovereign. He's in charge of everything. He's in charge of all the events of his life. Again, he was in charge of the events at his arrest. Just stop and think about it. When all these soldiers came to arrest him, he said, they said, who are you looking for? He said, I am. And they all did what? Fell down. 600 guys on the ground. Nobody's taking him against his will. Right? This kind of weak, effeminate, powerless, victimized Jesus is a figment of the modern church and its error. That's not who Jesus Christ was. He's the sovereign. He's in charge of everything. He's the all-powerful one. He's in charge of every event of his life. He's in charge of his arrest. Again, nobody takes his life. He's the one who voluntarily lays down his life. He was in charge of his own dying. Again, I told you, he's the one who sent away his spirit at the exact moment he determined to send away, send away his spirit. Nobody has the power to do that. We're all going to die, but nobody has the power to determine the moment of our death. We went through all, the, all those different kinds of suicidal things, but all those kind of things are you're giving the power over to the bullet, you're giving the power over to the poison, you're giving the power over to the fall when you jump out of a building. Nobody has the power to dismiss life except this person, uh, Jesus Christ. So that's what he does. He's in charge of everything. He's in charge of his rest. He's in charge of his, his, uh, 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 his death, his own dying. He's in charge of the burial and all the circumstances surrounding it. And now John wants us to know that Jesus is the one who's actually in charge of his resurrection. Again, why? Why does John write? He writes, Jesus writes, or John writes so that men would know that Jesus is the Christ and that might, men might believe in him and by believing on him, men might have life in his name. That's why he writes, right? God desires that all men would repent and come to a knowledge of the truth. God desires that no man would perish. There's no reason for men to perish, there's no reason for men to face God in judgment and bear their own sin because God out of his love and Christ out of his love has come to bear that punishment. 
And God desires that men would know Christ and have life. Now, that's what the, exactly what the Old Testament said was going to happen about the Messiah when he came, that he was going to die, he's going to be put to death, but his body would not see any corruption, uh, Psalm 16. He'd be uh, countered with the malefactors, but his body would be put into a rich man's tomb, Isaiah 53. He would be cut off from the land of the living, but then he'd raise again from the dead. Exactly what he promised, as he repeatedly made that promise that he would do. He would die, but he would rise again. He said, look, as Jonah was in the as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, the Son of Man is going to be three days and three nights in, in the earth. And again, that phrase, three days and three nights, a day and night, what, what he's just saying is like any part of a day. I'm going into the tomb, just like, just like uh, 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 Jonah did. So here we are, 20 verse 1, John 20 verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. On the first day of the week, it's Sunday. Right? The Lord is crucified on a Friday. He's buried uh, before the Sabbath day starts. Uh, the Jews mark days from sunset to sun sunset, not sunrise to sunrise like we do. And there he's been in the tomb part of Friday, all of Saturday, and part of Sunday. Three days, just like he said. On the third day, the first day of the week, the text says the tomb is empty. Now the Jews, again, don't name their days like we do, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Right? They number them. The Sabbath was a Saturday. That was the seventh day. The next day, Sunday, would be the first day of the week. So that's why you get the first day of the week. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark. Matthew says, as it began to dawn. Mark says, very, very early, just after sunrise. Luke says, at early dawn. Mary Magdalene came to the tomb. Now, the gospel accounts, the other gospel accounts tell us that Mary doesn't come alone. Uh, Mark says Salome, the mother of James and John, was there also. Luke adds Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, was there along with Joanna and, quote-unquote, other women. So by some accounts, about six women have arrived fair, very early at the tomb. All these women have set out very early from their homes uh, while it was still dark to the tomb, and they brought spices that they might anoint the body of Christ, uh, which again tells us uh, the, the fact that in spite of the fact that Jesus said he was many times he was going to die and defeat death and be resurrected, they still didn't understand that. The, the, the women are not coming to the tomb early this morning to see a resurrection. They're coming to see a corpse. They're, they're coming to see a corpse. They want to anoint the corpse. Now, because of the climate in this area and without embalming, uh, dead bodies are going to start to decompose very quickly. That's why when somebody died in this uh, era, uh, they were buried on the very same, day, very same day. So these women have come very early in the morning with spices, and they want to anoint the dead body of the Lord Jesus Christ before his deterioration uh, continues to a point uh, that it can't be managed. But it's interesting, along the way, uh, Mark adds this, Mark uh, 16, 3, uh, on the way to the tomb, the women, they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb for us? Right? So they come, they're all, they want to go there, they're coming to the tomb out of love, uh, they want to anoint the body of Christ, but they've not really thought through the thing completely. Who can, who can help us? Who can help us move away the stone from in front of the tomb? So they anticipate needing some help. And again, at this point, these ladies who are coming to the tomb very early on that morning have no idea that the tomb is being guarded by the Roman soldiers, nor do they have any idea that the, room ha the, the, the tomb has been sealed, but out of love and devotion to Christ they've come. They've come to anoint his dead body. Uh, again, those who are the last at the cross were the women. Those women are the first at the tomb. 
Now, while all the women set out together, Mary apparently arrives at the tomb first, and John turns our attention to her. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark. So she is the first person the scripture records that the resurrected Christ manifested himself to. Perhaps, uh, as an example, for those who love Christ most are those who have received the most benefit uh, from him. Uh, the history of this dear lady is hidden somewhat in obscurity. Uh, what we know about her, or most of what we know about her, really comes from the, the records of her appearance at the cross and then at the empty tomb. There, there's a vast amount, I believe, of needless scorn uh, heaped upon her, many claiming she was a habitual sinner, an adulterer, a, a forgiven prostitute. Many people mistakenly identify her uh, with a sinful woman out of Luke 7. But the Bible never identifies her as such. There's no evidence of that biblically. We are told that Mary Magdalene is one whom the Lord had cast, seven out, cast out seven devils or seven demons. You read that, Mark 16, 9, Luke 8, and 2. So Mary Magdalene had previously been one who had been subjected uh, particularly, uh, in a particular way to Satan's possession. One whose gratitude towards the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and her deliverance by his uh, uh, interaction in her life is overwhelming. Her, her gratitude towards Christ knows no bounds. J.C. Ryle points out this in his commentary. He says, in short, of all the Lord's followers on earth, none seem to have loved him so much as Mary Magdalene. None felt that they owed so much to Christ. None felt so strongly that there was nothing too great to do for Christ. She was the last at the cross and the first at his grave. She stayed the longest there and was the soonest there. She could not rest until she was up to seek him, and she saw him while it was yet dark, even before she had light to see him by. And again, in a word, having received much, she loved much, and having loved much, she did much in order to prove the reality of her love. That's a great statement. Mary's the first one to see the resurrected Christ. And she's the first one not only to see the resurrected Christ, she's the first one to take the news back to the, to the, the Gospels of Jesus, or to the disciples that uh, Jesus has actually defeated death, uh, that he's risen from the grave. Now, I found it interesting as I continue to read, um, especially reading through Ryle, of his uh, thoughts on this woman uh, and, and her love for Christ. Uh, it's interesting, you read his commentary, he won't let go of her. He won't let go of the love that Mary has for the person of Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ has done so much for her. I just thought it was a great point. Set her free. Cast out seven demons. Listen to Ryan. He says, The case before us throws broad and clear uh, a light on a question which ought to be deeply interesting to every true-hearted servant of Christ. How is it that many who profess and call themselves Christians do so little for the Savior whose name they bear? How is it that many whose faith and grace it would be uh, uncharitable to deny work so little, give so little, say so little, take so little pains in prom to promote Christ's cause and bring glory to Christ in the world? He says these questions admit only one answer. It is a low sense of debt and obligation to Christ, which is the amount of the whole matter. Where sin is not felt at all, nothing is done. Where sin is little felt, little is done. 
The man who is deeply conscious of his own guilt and corruption and deeply convicted that without the blood intercession of Christ, he would sink deservedly into the lowest hell. This is the man who will spend and be spent for Jesus and think he can never do enough to show forth his praise. Merle says, let us daily pray that we may see the sinfulness of sin and the amazing grace of Christ more clearly and distinctly. And then and only then shall we understand such a burning zeal as had Mary. That's a great statement. Why is it that so many people claim the name of Christ, do so little in Christ's name? It's a question that needs to be asked. It's a question that needs to be answered. The historical resurrection of Jesus Christ is just not just historical information. The historical resurrection of the person of Jesus Christ changes everything. It must affect your life. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14, For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. Now, if you know anything about that text, uh, when he's speaking about, Paul speaking about the love of Christ, he's not speaking of our love for Christ. The love of Christ controls us. He's not speaking about our love for Christ. He's speaking about the Savior's love for us. The love of Christ controls. The word of is in the genitive. That, that just means it belongs to Christ. It's his love. The reality of the historical resurrection of Christ, the reality of the love of the person of Jesus Christ, uh, his coming, his dying, uh, his indwelling, transforming work in us, uh, we're no longer our own. One died for all, therefore all died. We've all been bought with a price. Again, if one died, all died. Therefore, Paul says, uh, verse 15 of that chapter, 2 Corinthians 5, he says, and he who died for all, that we who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. The historical resurrection of Jesus Christ changes everything. And the historical resurrection of Jesus Christ has to change your life. If all it does is make your head swell because you've got more and more information and does not affect your heart, you do not understand biblical theology proper. The love of Christ controls us. Everything we do in life has to be in a view of what Christ has done and what he has given for us to transform and change our lives. Mary was in love with the person of Jesus Christ because he had set her free. And likewise, we who know the Salvation of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ should be likewise in love with him. And that should affect everything we do, how we spend our time, how we spend our money, who, who we associate with, what we think is important. The love of Christ controls us. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. Now, when Mary arrives at the grave of Jesus, again, she's astonished to see the stone had already been taken away from the tomb. She has no idea how that's happened. And she fears the worst. 
Now, Matthew gives us a little bit of insight. Matthew chapter 28, verse 2. He says, And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. They might remember that earthquakes are a common sign in the Bible uh, of the presence of God. There was an earthquake in Exodus 19 uh, when God gave the law to Moses. There's an earthquake in 1 Kings 19 uh, when God spoke to the prophet Elijah. And the book of Joel and the book of the Revelation uh, describes a future time there's going to be a great earthquake when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. And here uh, is the second earthquake in Jerusalem in three days. Because you remember when Christ died, there was a, an earthquake that split open the rocks and graves uh, uh, came open. People came out of, uh, out of the graves. That's in Matthew 27. So here again, there's an earthquake. And God is demonstrating his presence in grace and judgment. Behold, a severe earthquake had come. Here's the reason. For an angel of the Lord had descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. So again, the earthquake happens when the angel of the Lord descends from heaven, rolls away the stone. Most commentators believe, I don't know how they know this, but most commentators believe that the stone's probably laying flat now uh, on the ground. There's the angel sitting on that stone, which is huge, waiting for the women to arrive. Now again, the earthquake was not caused by Jesus uh, leaving the tomb. Uh, it was the angel of the Lord who descended as he touched down, as it were, uh, in the garden from heaven to the earth. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. So why does the angel roll away the stone? Well, listen, it's not to let Jesus out of the tomb. Because when the angel appears, Jesus is already gone. Jesus is already risen. Because Jesus has the power to raise himself from the dead. Jesus doesn't have to wait for the angel to come and move the stone. Now, obviously, no one, if it's, you look at all the resurrection texts, obviously there was nobody there actually saw the resurrection itself. There are no uh, witnesses, uh, eyewitnesses to the resurrection itself. But there's evidence of the resurrection because of what happened. And everybody's seen the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ leaves the tomb by his own power. You say, how do I know that? Well, because I read John. We've been doing this for years now, right? John 10 18. No one's taken my life from me, but I lay down on my own initiative. I have the authority. The word is exousia. It's power, right? I have the power. I have the authority to lay down my life, and I have the authority, the exousia, the power to take it up again. Jesus Christ comes out of the tomb because he's the author and the creator of life. Jesus Christ suddenly, at the right moment, quickens his body. He fills it with life. In an instant, he passes right through uh, the walls and the sealed uh, tomb, just like he's going to do in the very same day and the very same time in, in, in about eight days, uh, eight days later, uh, when he visits the uh, disciples in the upper room where the disciples were all sealed. In John chapter 26, it says, after eight days, again, it's Sunday, his disciples were inside, Thomas was with them, Jesus came to the doors, having been shut and stood in their midst and said, peace be with you. So the glorified Christ in a resurrected body somehow just passes right through the rock walls of the, of the sealed tomb, just like he uh, passed through the closed doors of the room that the disciples were in. That's no issue for him with a resurrected body. So the angel of the Lord who comes to remove the stone does so not to let Christ out, but he does so to let the world in. To let the world in so that the world can see. So the whole world can see that Jesus is no longer there. The tomb is empty. Jesus has defeated death, just like he said he would. Jesus has defeated death just like he said he did, just like he said he would. 
Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb, verse 2. And so she ran and came to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom, she, whom Jesus loved, that would be John, and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Now again, her reaction shows she believes that Jesus is dead but taken, right? She, she believes that Jesus is still dead but taken. Her reaction shows she's not expecting the resurrection. She, she's not a part of some elaborate resurrection hoax. Neither are the disciples part of some elaborate resurrection hoax. In fact, they're not going to go out and lie, as some have accused them. They're going to go out and, and lie and fabricate or preach a false story that Jesus rose from the dead when he actually didn't die, rise from the dead, and they know that. They're not going to lie and become martyrs which they all will become because they're trying to fake something. That's not what's going on here. Her shocked reaction demonstrates the fact she knows that Jesus is dead. They don't, she doesn't know where his body is. Her shocked reaction demonstrates there's no plan to steal the body of Jesus by the disciples. Now, we're not told specifically here at the moment that Mary even looked into the tomb. Perhaps she sneaked a peek. We don't know. At the moment, she assumes... The body, because the body is gone, tomb's open, she assumes the body is gone, and she runs back to uh, Simon and John and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb. Now, she doesn't specify who they are that have taken the Lord out of the tomb. And again, she also adds, we, I'm assuming the other women, we do not know where they have laid him. Now, in the meantime, as Mary Magdalene is uh, running back to Peter and John, and the other, uh, the other women arrive at the tomb. And when the other women arrive at the tomb, again, the angel appears to them. Matthew chapter 28, verse 2. Behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, and an angel of the Lord had descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. His appearance was like lightning, his garment white as snow, and the guards shook with fear because of him and became like dead men. Verse 5, Matthew 28. The angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid. For I know that you're looking for Jesus who's been crucified. I know you're looking for a corpse. I know you're looking for a dead body. But you're not going to find one. Why is that? Verse 6 of the chapter. He is not here for he is risen just as he said. Come see the place where he was laying. He is not here for he is risen. Uh, it, literally he's not here for he has been raised. Ergo. Uh, he's been aroused, caused to rise from the sleep of death. Uh, he's been recalled, uh, called from death to life. Uh, it literally means that Jesus has been awakened from the dead, raised from the dead, and, and because, again, there's no question that Jesus Christ really was dead. Crucifixion, the Roman soldiers, again, experts in death. They don't break the legs because they already know he's dead. A spear's thrust into his side to make sure that he's dead. He's dead already. Joseph and, uh, of Arimathea and Nicodemus uh, take away his body, uh, and they wrap it in cloths, uh, and, and they anoint it with perfumes and spices. Again, if there had been any sign of life in his body, uh, they, they would never have, uh, Joseph and uh, Nicodemus would never have placed the body in the tomb, sealed it, and went away, but they didn't. Because Jesus Christ is dead. But now he's been raised from the dead. Luke, in his version, says this, and when the women were confronted by the angel, Luke 24, verse 5, why do you seek the living one among the dead? 
Again, Matthew 28, verse 6, he's not here for his risen, just as he said, come see the place where he is lying. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has been raised from the dead. Again, the Bible says that Christ was raised from the dead by the power of the triune God. Uh, Jesus was raised by, uh, from the dead by his own power. Uh, he said that earlier in John 10, verse 8. I have the power to lay down my life. And I have the power to take it up again. The Bible also says that Jesus Christ was raised by the power of God the Father. Romans 6, 4, Galatians 1, 1, 1 Peter 1, 3. And Romans 8, 11 says that Jesus Christ was raised uh, from death to life by the power of the Holy Spirit. So again, the entire Trinity is responsible for calling Jesus back from the realm of the dead. The entire Trinity is responsible for the resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. So again, all along the way, Jesus had been telling his followers, his disciples, that this is what's going to happen. There's going to be a coming day when he's going to be accused. He's going to be mocked by the religious leaders and hated by the, by the peoples of Israel. And then he's going to be crucified. He expected that would happen. Because that's the reason why he came into the world. He came into the world for the express purpose to suffer and to die. To, by, to be a vicarious sufferer, a vicarious substitute. The Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. And then he said repeatedly that he would die. And on the third day he would defeat death and he has done so. He's not here. He is risen just as he said. So the angel reminds him again the prophecy of Christ himself, his very words, he's not here, just as he said, and then the angel invites him to come see. Come see the place where he's lying. Come see the place where he was lying until he defeated death. Until he raised himself victoriously to life. Listen to me. Come and see is an invitation. Come and see the place where he was lying. It's the command of the angel. It's an invitation from God to come to Christ. He's not here. He's not among the dead because he's now among the living. Evidence number one for a literal, physical, historical resurrection of Jesus Christ is the empty tomb. He is the victor over sin and death. Back here to John 20, verse 3. Peter therefore went forth and the other disciple and they were going to the tomb and the two of them were running together and the other disciple John ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. Verse 5. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings there lying, but he did not go in. Simon Peter therefore also came following him and entered the tomb and beheld the linen wrappings lying there and the face cloth which had been on his head uh, lying, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb entered then also, and he saw and believed. Now, when Peter and John come and take a look for themselves, uh, they're going to find the linen, <coughs> excuse me, the linen wrappings lying undisturbed. Everything is neat and orderly. It's not like grave robbers came in and took the body. Right? If the grave, rob if grave robbers had come in and stolen the body, they would have taken the body and the what? The wrappings, right? Everything's neat and orderly. The, the, the linen, linen wrappings are laying there undisturbed. The body has gone out. Head cloth laying off by its side. Significant issue. And Lord willing, I'm going to tell you more about that in, in the next uh, week or so uh, as we come back together and look at the text. And, and just to give you a spoiler alert, 
If you ever wondered about the authenticity of the Shroud of Turin, you come back next week and I'll show you from the scripture how to answer that question. It's really interesting. I breakfast with somebody last week and said, I really believe the Shroud of Turin is absolutely true. I said, wait. Don't say anything more. Let's look at the Bible and see what the Bible says. Because the Bible has the answer. No disciple had been there to steal the body. The body's gone. Lenny's cloths are there. I mean, all these little details that John's giving are vitally important. The stone being rolled away. And that's an interesting thing. We'll get to that, Lord willing, at some point. No disciple had been there to steal the body. No one had come to pillage the tomb. Because again, if they just stole the body, the grave clothes would have been gone. But they're all there, neatly folded, put in place. The Lord of glory is gone. Departed from the tomb, now gloriously alive. Literally, physically. Again, verse 8, so the other disciple who had first come to the tomb entered then also and he saw and believed. Now we're not exactly sure what he believed at that moment because John concludes here, verse 9, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. Tomb's empty. Jesus is not there. Angel has declared that Jesus has raised from the dead. Luke, in his version, reports it like this. He says in Luke chapter 1, verse 24, but on the first day of the week at early dawn, they came to the tomb, bringing spices which they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. And when they had entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Verse 4 says it happened while they were uh, while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood uh, near them with in dazzling apparel. As the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He's not here. He has risen. I remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise again. They remembered his words, returned from the tomb, and reported all these things to the eleven and all the rest. Why do you seek the living one among the dead? Jesus Christ has defeated death. The tomb is empty. Amen? Tremendous truth. Now, there's a whole lot more we got to get through uh, in this uh, section of Scripture, but Lord willing, we'll unpack it um, a, a little bit more next week. Our Father and our God, we're so thankful for the historical reality of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're so thankful for the careful text, the pen of John who gives us great detail and, and tells us information that is very helpful for us to understand truth because it's a historical account by an eyewitness. He claims that himself. And just like we would believe any eyewitness, uh, we need to believe the testimony of John. Uh, Jesus Christ is gone. He's out of the tomb. And that changes everything. I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to really think deeply on a personal level about that reality. How the resurrection of Jesus Christ changes our own lives and what that means to us on a personal level. Help us not just to go away from here with uh, more information filling our heads, but may that information transform our hearts and change our actions. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.